Afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jude Kelly, Artistic Director of the South Bank Centre, and very pleased that you're all here. We're competing with an event at Trafalgar Square, which is a protest about not being in Europe. Uh, and here we're going to have a different kind of protest, a more cerebral protest about uh, many things. But I want to give you a context um, for this particular event, which is to do with Wagner. And some of you will know that, and some of you might immediately be thinking, what's that about? I've come to see Zizek. But we decided a few years ago that one of the most peculiar and amazing and unknowable pieces in the European canon was Wagner's Ring Cycle. It's one of those things where people say to you, you won't understand it, you won't like it, and even if you did, you can't get a ticket. And it produces in people a sense that there are these huge cultural artifacts that belong to, to, to the few and not the many. And so we decided to do a ring cycle here over this weekend that would be as far as we could make it for the many and not the few in the way that it was done, in who joined us doing it, streetwise homeless opera, uh, London transport staff, nurses from St. Thomas's Hospital, many, many schools, etc. And for those of you who are going to come back tomorrow, if you want to, Gotterdammerung, which is the final one, is free on the ballroom floor in that sort of garden area where you can sit and, and watch it. Um, when we were thinking about that, we also thought about kind of the, the strangeness of this amazing piece of work, which ends up being for the few and not the many. And the fact that the central story in the ring cycle is actually about the lust and desire for power and for this idea of the ring, the golden ring, uh, which if you have it, you can rule the world. And so we thought, well, let's really examine the notion of power because even then, two years ago, when we started thinking about it, it was so evident that people who love power like to have as much as possible. And once people start losing power, actually, it's very difficult to regain it. And there are some people in our societies who are absolutely powerless, and there are others who accumulate power and power themselves up on and on and on. So we wanted to examine the whole construct of power and its dynamics and who are the gains and who are having the gains and who are having the losses. We never could have predicted, although I'd like to pretend we did, that this week we would be having a European referendum about whether to stay in or whether out, and then there would be all of these corpses like the end of a Jacobean tragedy. Um, but there we are. We have got that situation. So when we invited Slavoj Žižek to talk about Wagner, power and treachery, we didn't realize just like how on the button we were. So he really needs very little introduction. He's a global thinker. Uh, he's a, somebody who, who actually, given any topic, will uh, form a very interesting and unusual and sometimes maverick opinion. He, he understands what it's like to be both entertaining and thoughtful. And it's going to be a very interesting uh, morning. So the format is going to be, he's going to talk for about 40 or 45 minutes-ish. Uh, and then we'll take a few questions. Uh, but I think the main thing is we're here to hear what he has to say. And uh, we're very excited to have him. So can I introduce you straight away, Zizek. Thank you.
Thank you very much. I'm proud to be here, although it will be a little bit overstretched to move from Wagner to Brexit, but I will try it. Okay. In 1995, at a conference on Wagner at Columbia University, New York, after the majority of participants exceeded each other in the art of unmasking the anti-Semitic and proto-fascist dimension of Wagner's art, <coughs> sorry, a member of the public asked a wonderfully naive question. So, if all you are saying is true, if anti-Semitism is not just Wagner's private idiosyncrasy, but something which concerns the very core of his art. Why then should we listen to Wagner today, after the experience of Holocaust? When we enjoy Wagner's music, does this not stigmatize us with the complicity? Then typically, the embarrassed participants replied with confused version of, no, of course, we did not mean that. Wagner wrote wonderful music, and so on, and so on. So again, is our passionate attachment to Wagner to remain an obscene secret to be disavowed in public academic discourse? I will try to redeem Wagner. Anti-Semitism, first, is not some hidden ultimate truth of Wagner's universe that had to be unearthed through complex hermeneutic procedures. It is not hidden, it is openly displayed out there for everyone to see in Wagner's written texts. Even when the anti-Semitic message is discernible in his work, Wagner, I think, and always undermines it, acquires a distance towards it through his very artistic practice. For example, maybe the most obvious case, Mime, the brother of Alberich, in uh, in Siegfried, especially, uh, third part of the ring. It is, obviously, a portrait of a repulsive Jew, contrasted to the heroic youth and strength of Siegfried. But, and everybody knows this, Wagner wrote about it, he is also Wagner's own ironic self-portrait. So it's so interesting this, that all figures which obviously imitate this cliche of a confused, uh, uh, aggressive Jew are Wagner's self-portraits. And above all, we should never forget that the first full-blooded Wagnerian hero, finding himself in the archetypal Wagnerian position of being undead, condemned to endless wandering, unable to find but longing for redemption in death, is Fliegende Holländer, the Flying Dutchman, who is clearly a Jewish figure, modeled on Ahasver, the wandering Jew. And incidentally, the main source for it was Heinrich Heine, a Jewish poet. Wagner himself called Fliegende Holländer Ahasver des Ocean, Ahasver of the Ocean. And all other Wagnerian heroes are variations of the Dutchman, up to Wotan, the supreme god in the ring, who, as you probably know, in Siegfried, the third installment of the ring, turns into Wanderer. Again, figure of Wandering Jew. 
So how did Wotan end up as a wanderer? His, Wotan's act was to impose the rule of law on innocent nature. From his project, as it were, was to rule the world from Valhalla, the fortress of gods, bringing peace and justice to the universe. But the attempt failed because of the compromises he had to commit. These compromises concern not only the well-known topic of illegitimate violence that grounds the rule of law, not only the notion of the rule of law disturbing the innocence of the spontaneous natural life. A crucial part of Wotan's tragedy is that he has abandoned love in the service of law, and he thereby relinquished everything that is most precious to him. This everything is embodied in Brunhilde, his preferred daughter. In the ring, this is absolutely crucial always to bear in mind, the source of evil is not, in the first scene of Rheingold, Alberich, the evil dwarf, fatal choice. He renounced love to get the gold. Long before this event took place, Wotan broke the natural balance, succumbing to the lure of power, giving preference to power over love. He tore out and destroyed the gigantic world tree, making out of it his spear, on which he inscribed the runes fixating the loss of his rule. Plus, he plucked out one of his eyes in order to gain insight into inner truth. Evil thus does not come from the outside. The insight of Wotan's tragic monologue with Brunhilde in the second act of Valkyrie is that the power of Alberich and the prospect of the end of the world is ultimately Wotan's own guilt, the result of his own ethical fiasco. No wonder then that Wotan is called the White Alb, in contrast to the Black Alb Alberich. They are two sides of the same coin. If anything, Wotan's choice is ethically much worse than Alberich's. Alberich longed for love and only turned towards power after being brutally mocked and turned down by the Rhine maidens. While Wotan turned to power after fully enjoying the fruits of love and getting tired of them. And it is precisely after this moral fiasco that Wotan turns into wanderer. To get out of this mess, Wotan creates Siegfried, the innocent hero not bound by the paradoxes of law. Here, things also immediately turn wrong. There is effectively in Wagner's Siegfried, not opera, the figure of Siegfried, an unconstrained, innocent aggressivity, an urge to directly pass to the act and just squash what goes on his nerves. As in Siegfried's words to Mime, the small dwarf brother of Alberich, in the act one of Siegfried, I quote, libretto, when I watch you standing, shuffling and trembling, servilely stooping, squinting and blinking, I long to seize you by your nodding neck 
and make an end of your obscene blinking. This sounds even more impressive in German. Seh dich stehen, gangeln und gehen, nicken und nicken, mit den Augen zwicken. Beim Genickt möchte ich den Nicker packen, den Garausgeb dem Garsgen zwicker. This is probably how some German bureaucrat was shouting at Boris Johnson, but that's another, that comes later. So, is this not what we get here? The most elementary disgust, repulsion, felt by a racist when confronted with an intruding foreigner. One can easily imagine a Brexit skinhead uttering the same words in the face of a worn-out immigrant worker. That should be one topic. I think Wagner knew it. Siegfried is not simply a good guy. He's an extremely brutal person. From this point, again, things then go, just go downward. After Siegfried comes Hagen, Alberich's son and Siegfried's murderer. And the move from Siegfried to Hagen can effectively be compared to the one from SA to SS in Nazi Germany, from brutal thugs to cold calculating criminals. The dark figure of Hagen is profoundly ambiguous. Although initially depicted as a dark plotter, both in the old epic Nibelungenlied and in Fritz Lang's film, he emerges as the ultimate hero of the entire work and is redeemed at the end as the supreme case of Nibelungentreue, fidelity to death to one's cause, or rather to the master who stands for this cause. The conflict is here between fidelity to the master and everyday moral obligation. obligations. Hagen stands for a kind of teleological suspension of morality on behalf of fidelity. He is the ultimate Gefolksmann follower. Significantly, it is only Wagner who depicts Hagen as a figure of evil. Is this not an indication of how Wagner nonetheless belongs to the modern space of freedom? It was Wagner's genius to intuit ahead of his time the rising figure of a fascist, ruthless executive who is at the same time a rebel-rousing demagogue. Just if you know a little bit Ring, remember Hagen's terrifying Menner Ruf call to his men uh, from the second act of The Twilight of Gods. What makes Hagen a proto-fascist is his role of the unconditional support for the weak ruler, King Günther. He does for Günther the dirty jobs which, although necessary, have to remain concealed from the public gaze. We find this stance a kind of mirror reversal of the beautiful soul which refuses to dirty its hands. We find it at its purest in the rightest admiration for the heroes who are ready to do the necessary dirty job. The logic is this one. It is easy to do a noble thing for your country, up to sacrificing your life for it. It is much more difficult to commit a crime for your country when it is needed. Hitler knew very well how to play this double game apropos the Holocaust, using Himmler as his Hagen. 
In the speech to the SS leaders in Posen, Poznan on October 4, 1943, Himmler spoke quite openly about the mass killing of the Jews as, quote from Himmler, a glorious page in our history and one that has never been written and never can be written, end of quote. Now, it is crucial to perceive Hagen in contrast to his father Alberich. Together, they form the two versions of the figure of the obscene father in Wagner. Let me recall another similar traumatic relationship in Wagner's work, the one between the Fischer King Amfortas and his father Titurel in Parsifal, a true counterpart to the relationship between Alberich and Hagen in The Twilight of Gods. The contrast between the two confrontations of father and son is clear. In The Twilight, the dynamics, nervous agitation, most of the talking, is on the side of the father, with Hagen, for the most part, just listening to this obscene apparition, which appears like Albtraum, like a nightmarish dream. In Parsifar, Titurel is an immobile, immobilized, oppressive presence who barely breaks his silence with the superego injunction and Graal, reveal the grail, whereas Anfortas, the wounded Fisher King, is the dynamic agent, giving voice to his refusal to perform the ritual. Is it not clear if one listens very closely to this dialogue between father and son in Parsifal, that the truly obscene presence, the ultimate cause of the decay of the Grail community, is not the external threat to it, Klingsor, the evil magician who controls his gang of prostitutes. Uh, Klingsor is evidently a small-time crook. The true evil is Titurel himself, an obscene undead apparition, a dirty old man who is so immersed in the enjoyment of the grail that he perturbs the regular rhythm of its disclosure. So the opposition of Alberich and Titular is the opposition between the two modes of obscenity itself. The opposition between the strong, oppressive, enjoying father, Titurel, and the humiliated, agitated, weak father, Alberich. I, this is for me, again, the central element in Wagner, which I think more or less redeems him of this accusation of proto-fascist anti-Semitism. Again, if you look subtly at it, evil does not come from outside. It's not we have an organic community, then Jews or whoever interviews. No, the true source of evil is in the very center of our own community. This brings me to the figure that embodies this, that is to say, persons in Wagner like Alberich, Hagen, and so on, to the figure that embodies contemporary authority, a friendly boss, manager, whatever, who is like us, with all ordinary human weaknesses. This figure of a friendly boss 
totally turns around the logic of what in psychoanalysis we call symbolic castration, the price to be paid for the exercise of power. From the traditional rituals of investiture, we know the objects which not only symbolize power, but put the subject who acquires them into the position of effectively exercising power. If a king holds in his hands the scepter and wears the crown, his words will be taken as the words of a king. Such insignia are external, not part of my nature. I don them, I wear them in order to exert power. As such, they castrate me. They introduce a gap between what I immediately am and the function that I exercise. This is the infamous symbolic castration. Not castration as symbolic, as just symbolically enacted, in the sense in which we say that, for example, when I am deprived of something, I feel castrated. But the castration which occurs by the very fact of me being caught into the symbolic order, assuming a symbolic title. Castration is this very gap between what I immediately am and the symbolic mandate which confers on me this authority. Which is why, for Lacan, as he puts it, a, a madman is precisely psychotic, is precisely a subject who denies this gap. As Lacan puts it, a madman is not just a beggar who thinks he is a king, but even more a king who thinks he is a king, in the sense of he thinks he is a king in himself, of what he naturally is, not because of the symbolic investiture. One has to think of what Lacan calls the phallic signifier, not as the organ which immediately expresses the vital force of my being, my virility, but precisely as such an insignia, as a mask which I put on in the same way a king or judge puts on his insignia. Phallus is an organ without a body, which I put on, which gets attached to my body without ever becoming its organic part forever sticking out as an incoherent, excessive supplement. However, this gap between the symbolic title, insignia that I wear, and the miserable reality, empirical reality of me, the individual who bears this title, now I come to my crucial point, this relationship tends to function today, I claim, in a radically different way. It underwent a reversal noted by Alain Badiou apropos Jean Genet's famous play Balcon. Quote from Alain Badiou, democracy means precisely that there are no costumes. Inequality no longer wears a costume. There are dramatic, gigantic inequalities, but their laicization leaves them without a costume. End of quote. What does this mean? On a simple descriptive level, this means that in a democratic egalitarian society, masters, those who exert power, no longer have to wear insignia or costumes that would constitute them as bearers of power. 
They can dress and act naturally, like everybody else, renouncing all dignity. The message of the way they dress and act is, see, we are common people like you, with all weaknesses, fears, limitations, like everyone else. In short, their castration is no longer covered up by the splendor of their insignia, but is openly displayed. However, this honest operation should in no way deceive us. For all their common appearance, they continue to assert their full power, perhaps even more directly than the traditional master. Or, to quote my Lacanian colleague from Ljubljana, Alenka Zupancic, let the image be castrated in all possible ways, while I can do more or less whatever I want. In a strange reversal of the classic logic of castration as the means to access symbolic power, we are dealing here with the castration of the symbolic public image as a means to execute and perpetuate limitless power." End of quote. Castration, the display of weakness, thus becomes part of the public image, not in the simple and straightforward sense that it simply masks the actual exercise of ruthless power. The point is rather that this mask of castration is the very instrument, mode, of how power is practiced. Demystification is here redoubled beneath the gesture of demystification. You see, I dropped all masks and costumes. I'm an ordinary guy like you, tells you, your boss. The exercise of power, which is a symbolic fact, remains intact. When confronted with a boss, who talks and acts as an ordinary man, his subordinate would thus be fully justified in addressing him with a paraphrase of the well-known Marx Brothers joke. Why are you talking and acting as an ordinary man when you really are just an ordinary man? The paradox is that if the agent of power were to put on the masks of insignia, this was not increase his power, but undermine it, making it appear ridiculously pathetic. So, the formula, je sais bien, mais quand même, I know very well, but, is here given a specific taste. It is not, no longer just, I know very well you are an ordinary weak guy like me, but I still accept you as my master because you wear the proper insignia of power. It is rather something like, I know very well you're a miserable, weak guy like me. And for that very reason, because I know this, I can continue to obey you, to allow you to function as my master. Knowledge is here not an obstacle to be suspended, like I know, but I act as if I don't know. <coughs> it is a positive condition of the functioning of what it discloses in its gesture of demystification. Mystification persists not in spite of its denunciation, but through it, because of it. You get my point? Power functions only insofar as it mocks itself. We thus get the figure of a master who rules through a display of his castration a master who claims he is our pal, 
who renounces his insignia, he presents himself as our equal friend, while retaining all his authority with the help of this very self-debasement. This paradox characterizes cynicism as the hegemonic form of today's ideology. In cynicism, the denial, the fetishist denial, I know very well, but acquires a new form. It is no longer the belief which persists in our actual practice in spite of our knowledge. Like, I know very well that you are just an ordinary person, but nonetheless, I treat you as my master. Uh, like, I know there is no God, but I continue to participate in religious rituals out of respect for my culture and so on. So I think that incidentally, even religion functions like this today. The more I read religious statements, even from Vatican, I think uh, that they already, in a very refined way, incorporate this self-distance. Like, we know that probably there is no God, but it's part of our culture, let's play the game, and so on. <laughs> uh, in today's cynicism, the disavowal of knowledge is not embodied in a fetish object. Things are brought to a self-referential extreme so that the fetish which enables us to disavow knowledge is knowledge itself. Knowledge functions as an obstacle which prevents what? Seriously accepting and assuming knowledge itself. It is true. Now, let me give you an example to make this clear, if it sounds too Hegelian speculative. It is true that we didn't really learn a lot from uh, 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 Assange, Snowden, Chelsea Manning, and so on. We didn't learn anything we didn't already at least presume to be true. But it is one thing to know it in general, another thing to get concrete data. Apropos Assange, I already used this tasteless metaphor. It's a little bit like knowing that your sexual partner is playing around with other persons. You can easily accept the abstract knowledge of it, but it gets painful only when you learn the steamy details. You get pictures, you are told she put her finger there and so on, whatever. That's what ruins it. And, uh, so uh, this is why the most perfidious defense of those in power, for example, is not to deny the WikiLeaks accusations, but to say, I think this was the strategy of power, to say, we are not naive. We knew or suspected all of this. Do you really think we are so stupid we didn't know it all along, what those in power are doing? So why all the fuss about it? With this operation, those who disclosed the problematic data that should worry and annoy us become themselves a source of annoyance. Like, what, this WikiLeaks, so what? We know it, leave the power alone to function the way it has to function, and the less you know, the better, and so on and so on. So again, what happens nonetheless with WikiLeaks? We knew it all, I claim. Of course, not the details, but generally. The one who didn't know is the one called by Lacan the big other, the authority knowledge of the public space. 
We can act as if we don't know because the big other doesn't know it. A similar strategy is at work in apologizing, where a quick admission can serve as an excuse to avoid a real apology. You know, I, I know this, I witnessed it. It's a wonderful strategy. If you do something wrong, say, okay, I apologize, so now shut up and stop annoying me. You know how apology itself can serve as a way to avoid truly apologizing. Along these lines, one can imagine a new version of Freud's old example of a dreamer whose answer to who was that woman in your dream is. I don't know who that woman was, but I'm sure it was not my mother. I think today the dreamer would, would admit all too willingly, it was my mother, of course, so don't bother me with it. We all know it. You see my point here. You accept it, you accept knowledge, precisely in order to neutralize it. Now things get really complicated. The basic fetishism which structures the way we relate to a person of authority was described long ago by, among others, Marx. A king is a king because we treat him like a king. But it appears to us that we treat him as a king because he is in himself a king. However, beneath this elementary fetishist reversal, there is, I claim, another more tricky one. The illusion that beneath the costume of power, which confers on a person his, her charisma, there is just an ordinary person like ourselves. Recall how, on the back cover of a book, we often find beneath the description of the topic, content, some personal details about the author. Something like, in her free time, Patricia Highsmith grows tulips and collects rare silver coins, whatever. I think that such a list of personal features, whose function is to prove, look, she is like one of us, she is nonetheless human. Uh, not only does not defetishize the writer, but is the very operator of his or her fetishization. I think this is how power works. Again, it makes you all the time aware that, but listen, behind all that, blah, blah, I'm just an ordinary person, which is why incidentally years ago, but it was rejected by a publisher, I tried to subvert this logic by simply putting in this, they told me, do you, can you tell us some personal details? What do you do? Do you take walks, bicycle, whatever? And I, of course, it was not true, but I wrote something like, in my free time, in his free time, Professor Zizek slowly dissects cats and rats <laughs> and uh, teaches his son how to torture dogs. I don't know what, something. You know, of course, I don't do this, but the point was precisely to show, to show the lie of it. I think the greatest lie today in our post-ideological era is precisely this lie of behind the ideological cliches, we are rich persons, all with our traumas, fears, and so on, uh, and uh, never forget this. We cannot be reduced to, to, to this public image of authority and so on. In Israel, I noticed 
the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, play this game in a perfect way. They are not presented as perfect soldiers, you know, like one battalion of Israeli army can defeat in one afternoon uh, Egypt or whatever. No. I, I read texts, interviews where they claim it was horrible, Yom Kippur war. We were, we were uh, urinating in our pants, we were terrified, and so on and so on. That's how you build the myth. And here, Lacan, Jacques Lacan, as a person, did something ingenious. Those who knew him personally were always looking for small private details, signs of humanity, so that they would be able to say, you know, behind the arrogant posture of his performances, you know, Lacan acted with a uh, uh, ridiculously artificial formal way, there is really, don't worry, he is a nice warm guy like us. And I didn't know Lacan, but all who knew him told me that this was the great shock of their lives, that when you met him in private, he was precisely the same affected artificial bastard. Never you got this, oh, but now I got him as a war human being like ourselves and so on and so on. So this means that things with the mask we are wearing, mask in the sense of our public image, uh, and the relation between this and what is behind the mask is much more complicated than when it may appear. It's not that mask is just a mask, and, but beneath you can see, let's say I am a Nazi, and uh, if I were to be Hitler and would be caught today, I don't know, mega old and accused, I would have said, but you only see me as a public figure. Didn't you know how I stroke cats, I play with children, my God, I'm a warm human person, and so on and so on. And there is only one answer to this. No, it's not that your public mask masks the real person behind. What you construct as a real person behind you construct it in order to obfuscate and render tolerable to yourself the horrors you are doing in your public role. Our private inner truth is the true mask. This is how I would like to propose you to read a slightly brutal experiment that you can perform on your child. I may be a crazy father, I did it to my child when he was small. I approached him with the mask on, and of course, he got frightened. Then I pulled the mask off, and, so I, and he saw my stupid face, which was well known to him, and he smiled a little bit. Then, now comes the mystery, then I put the mask on again, and the mystery is that he was terrified again, although he knew very well, behind the mask is just my stupid dad. But no, he was terrified again, and I think he was right, since the mask engenders a third reality, a ghost in the mask, which is not the reality of the face hidden beneath it. This ghost in the mask, this ex the child is afraid of, is precisely the abyss of pure subject, not to be confused with personality and so on. This is also the reason why that's how I read, how do you call it in English? I don't know in French, they call it burqa, this um, cover of Muslim women. This is why wearing a burqa is so unbearable for some of us in the West. 
not because the faith remains hidden, so that we don't know with whom we are dealing, but because we, in a way, see the void behind the naked face, this ultimate mask. When, in 2010, the French government prohibited wearing a burqa in public, what could not but strike the eye was the ambiguity of those who criticized allowing women wearing a burqa. Their criticism moved at two levels. First, the prohibition of burqa was presented as a defense of the dignity and freedom of the oppressed Muslim women. They claimed it is unacceptable that in secular France, any woman has to live a hidden life secluded from public space, subordinated to brutal patriarchal authority. However, as a rule, the argument then shifted towards the anxieties of non-Muslim French people. Faces covered by the burqa do not fit the coordinates of French culture and identity. They intimidate and alienate non-Muslims. So some French women have even suggested that they perceive the wearing of a burqa as their own humiliation, an act of being brutally excluded from a social link. And again, this brings us to the true enigma here. Why does the encounter with the face covered by a burqa trigger such anxiety? Is it that a face so covered is no longer this Levinasian face, the otherness from which an unconditional ethical call emanates, this ultimate ethical agency? I think the opposite is true. From a Freudian perspective, the face itself is the ultimate mask that conceals the horror of what in Judeo-Christian tradition is called neighbor, which is precisely the terrifying other, the abyss of the other, the other for whom we don't know what he or she wants. The face is what makes the neighbor le semblable, a fellow man with whom we can identify, empathize. Not to mention the fact that today so many faces are surgically modified that they are mostly deprived of the last vestige of personal authenticity. This then is why I claim covered face causes such anxiety. It confronts us directly with the neighbor in its uncanny dimension. The very covering up of the face obliterates a protective shield so that the other neighbor stares at me directly. Recall that the burqa has a narrow slit for the eyes. We don't see the eyes, but we know there is a gaze there. Alphonse Allais, the French satirical writer, presented his own version of Salome's dance of seven whales. When Salome is completely naked, Herod shouts, go on, go on expecting her to take off also the veil of her skin. We should imagine something similar with a woman wearing a burqa. The opposite of, uh, it's the opposite of a woman removing her burqa to reveal her face. We should imagine a woman taking off the skin of her face itself so that what we see beneath is precisely the anonymous, dark, smooth, burqa-like surface with a narrow slit for the gaze. You see my point. I think what you see with the covered face 
is precisely a totally naked woman when the face as the ultimate mask is taken off. That's why it's so horrible. Because, of course, it's impenetrable. What do I know that gays? What it, but this impenetrability of the other is the innermost truth of the other. Let me give you an example from popular culture before I go to that boring conclusion, Brexit and so on. In a unique moment in Star Wars 3, Revenge of the Sith, we get a glimpse of this figure. We should bear in mind the somewhat awkward Hegelianism of the first three installments of the Star Wars saga. As in Chesterton's, the man who was Thursday, where the mastermind criminal is revealed to be none other than God himself, we gradually discover that Senator Palpatine, the leader of the Republic, Chancellor of its Senate, in its war against the Separatist Federation, is none other than Darth Sidious, the mysterious supreme Sith Lord who pulls the string behind the separatists. So, in fighting separatists, the Republic is fighting itself, which is why the moment of its triumph and the defeat of the separatists is the moment of the Republic's conversion into the evil empire. In the middle of the film, when Palpatine reveals himself to Anakin, the future Darth Vader, as the Sith Lord Darth Sidious, Anakin reports his treachery to Mace Windu, a Jedi Knight, who subdues Palpatine in a lightsaber duel. Seeing Palpatine threatened and humiliated by Mace Windu, Anakin intervenes on Palpatine's, Palpatine's behalf, allowing him to kill the Jedi Master. Now, what I want to focus on here is the transformation of Palpatine's face during this interchange. After being exposed to brutal energy shocks from Mace Windu's lightsaber, the skin of Palpatine's face gradually turns hard and crinky, as if corrugated, changing into a crocodile head surface. But the change is also the one in his attitude. When Palpatine is under, under duress, his face gets deformed, twisted, expressing Palpatine's fear of pain and death, like an even, evil child in panic. And the moment Anakin cuts off Windu's hand and thus immobilizes him, Palpatine attacks him, frying him with rays of force with childish pleasure. A true laughing hyena. To quote from a personal communication from Liza Thompson, Palpatine seizes power at the very moment of total helplessness. One can see how he has won in that very moment. He's already looking forward to the moment when he can throw back his hood to the Senate, in the Senate and display his horribly mutilated scrotum-like head." End of quote. So it is only after this passage through the utter loss of all dignity after this symbolic authority, after his symbolic authority is totally debased, that Palpatine can re-emerge as what he really is, Darth Sidious, the Lord of Darkness. His ridiculous weakness is not an obstacle to his power, but its very resort. So, well, to conclude, 
Who would be today's figure of such a leader who exerts power through displaying his or her human weaknesses? I will not go into it here, maybe Boris Johnson again. <laughs> because, you know, it's interesting to note that when on a visit to England, Wagner was approaching London on Thames and saw from his boat all the factories and smoke from their chimneys, he exclaimed, this is Nibelheim, Alberich land. And effectively, is the duality of Wotan and Alberich, of the White Alp and Black Alp, not the duality of the public political leader and the capitalist running his subterranean empire. You find the same shift in the figure of the master in what I consider a crucial film detecting this shift in modern authority. I hope you saw it. Uh, 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 the usual suspects, where Kaiser Seuze is precisely the guy played like Kevin Spacey, the weakest guy, a guy like us, normal guy. And Hagen, who is Brexit Hagen? We are still waiting for him. Why? The true stakes of the Brexit referendum become clear if we locate it into its larger context. In Western and Eastern Europe, we are witnessing signs of a long-term rearrangement of the political space. Till recently, the political space was dominated by two main parties, which addressed the entire electoral body. A right-wing, sorry, a right of center party, Christian Democrats, liberal conservative, People's Party, and the left of center party, socialist, social democratic, and so on. Then with smaller parties addressing a narrow electorate, ecologists, neo-fascists, communists, whatever. Now there is progressively emerging a one party which stands for global capitalism as such, usually even with relative tolerance towards abortion, gay rights, religious, ethnic minorities, and so on. Opposing this party is a stronger and stronger anti-immigrant populist party, which on its fringes can be accompanied by directly racist neo-fascist groups. And the stakes of so-called radical center today are which of the two old main parties conservatives or liberals will succeed in presenting itself as embodying the post-ideological non-politics against the other party dismissed as still caught in old ideological specters. First, it looked conservatives were better at it than liberal leftists. Now it's again, so it seems, conservatives. The anti-immigrant populism brings passion, it's true, back into politics. It speaks in the terms of antagonisms, us against them. And one of the signs of the confusion of what remains of the left is the idea that one should take this passionate approach from the right, that one should adopt it. You know, the logic of if Marine Le Pen can do it, mobilize workers with nationalist rhetorics, why should we also not do it? So one should return to strong nation state and mobilize national passions and so on a ridiculous struggle for me lost in advance. The Brexit referendum moved along the lines of this new opposition, which is why there was something terrible wrong with it. To see this, one should only look at the strange bedfellows that found themselves together in the Brexit camp. 
right-wing patriots, populist nationalists fueled by the fear of immigrants mixed with desperate working-class rage. In such, is such a mixture of patriotic racism with the rage of ordinary people not the ideal ground for a new form of fascism? The intensity of the emotional investment into the referendum, I think, should not deceive us. The choice offered obfuscated the true questions. How to fight agreements like TI, like TIP, which present a real threat to our sovereignty, how to confront ecological catastrophes or economic imbalances which breed new poverty and migrations and so on. The choice of Brexit means a setback for these true struggles. Sufficient to bear in mind that an important argument for Brexit was precisely the so-called refugee threat. The Brexit referendum was the ultimate proof that ideology, in the good old Marxist sense of false consciousness, is well and alive in our societies. The case of Brexit exemplifies perfectly the falsity of the calls to restore national sovereignty, like the British people themselves, not some anonymous Brussels bureaucrats, should decide the fate of our country. Immediately after the Brexit victory, here is what my good friend Eric Sentner wrote me from Chicago a couple of days ago now, a quote. At the heart of the Brexit is a paradox worth articulating. England wants to withdraw from the bureaucratic administrative control of Brussels, control seen as compromising its sovereignty, in order to be better, better able to organize the dismantling of its sovereignty by way of more radical submission to the logic of global capital, to organize this dismantling on its own. Does this not have the markings of the death drive? The organism wants to die in its own way, on its own terms. This is the paradox at the heart also of American Republican thinking. We want to, I noticed that I almost get, got an applause for death drive. There is still hope for Hegelian negativity. Uh, now still, Eric Sentner goes on, this paradox is at the heart of American Republican thinking. We want to take back our country in order to be better able to submit it and pretty much all of life to the logic of the market, end of quote. And this paradox, I think, is confirmed by a quick look at the conflict between the UK and the European Union in the past decades. You know, when some leftists dream about how, if we restore the full sovereignty of the United Kingdom, we will be able to restore uh, some welfare state and so on and so on. My God, just look. You can locate them easy uh, uh, on the web. Look at the predominant, all the big conflicts between uh, the UK government and Brussels. It was not UK government defending workers' rights against uh, Brussels as the instrument of international capital. I remember one big conflict in the Tony Blair years was that the EU demanded limiting the weekly work hours and United Kingdom government complained that such a measure will affect the competitiveness of the British industry. Then there was ecology. 
the uh, Brussels bureaucracy wanted to impose higher ecologic standards, like prohibiting buying uh, oil produced through fracking and so on. Again, United Kingdom sabotaged it. It was the same with the topic of human rights and so on and so on. In short, the so much vilified Brussels bureaucracy was also a protector of minimal workers' rights in exactly the same way as it is today the protector of the rights of refugees against many sovereign nation states which are not ready to receive them. The ongoing troubles with immigrants in Germany simply confront us with the limits of democracy, the way we have it now. How are we to counter anti-immigrant populists who demand a referendum of, on immigrants, assured that the majority of Germans will vote against the immigrants? Is then the solution to give the voting rights also to immigrants, but to whom among them? To those who are already in Germany, to those who want to go there. At the end of this line, we get the idea of worldwide elections, which is self-defeating for a simple and precise reason. I quote here Yuval Harari from his new book, Homo Deus, quote, people feel bound by democratic elections only when they share a basic bond with most other voters. If the experience of other voters is alien to me, and if I believe they don't understand my feelings and don't care about my vital interests, then even if I am outvoted by 100 to 1, I have absolutely no reason to accept the verdict. Democratic elections work only within populations that have some prior common bind, such as shared religious beliefs or national myths. They are a method to settle disagreements between people who already who already agree on the basics, end of quote. In larger context, the only procedure at our disposal, outside outright war, of course, are negotiations. That's why the Middle East conflict cannot be solved by elections, but only either by war or by negotiations. So where does this leave us with Brexit? When Stalin was asked, sorry, I repeat this story for probably like 40th time. When Stalin was asked in the late 20s, which deviation is worse, the right one or the leftist one, he snapped back. They are both worse. I think it was the same with the choice British voters were confronting. Remain, remain, reject Brexit, remain in the EU was in some sense worse. Because, since it meant persisting in the inertia that keeps Europe mired down. Exit was worse since it made changing nothing look desirable. In the days before the referendum, there was a pseudo-deep thought circulating in our media. Whatever the result, EU will never be the same. It will be irreparably damaged. I think it's the opposite, which is true. Nothing will really change. Just the inertia of Europe will be more and more impossible to ignore. Europe will again lose time in negotiations among the EU members, which all continue, we, uh, which will continue to make any large-scale political project impossible. This is what those who oppose Brexit didn't see. Shocked 
They now complain about the irrationality of the Brexit voters, ignoring the desperate need for change that the vote made palpable. So again, I am well aware that the uh, Brussels bureaucracy is inefficient and so on, whatever you want, corrupted, but the solution is not return to national sovereignty. Why? I like to recall always Mao Zedong's old motto, everything under heaven is in utter chaos, the situation is excellent. <laughs> a crisis is to be taken seriously, without illusions, but also as a chance to be fully exploited. Although crises are painful and dangerous, they are the terrain on which battles have to be won. Is there not a struggle also in heaven? Is the heaven also not divided? And does the ongoing confusion not offer a unique chance to react to the need for a radical change in a more appropriate way, with a project that will break the vicious cycle of European technocracy, Brussels technocracy, and nationalist populism? The true division of our heaven is not between anemic Brussels bureaucracy and nationalist passions, but between the two together, their vicious cycle and maybe a new European project which will address the true challenges that humanity is confronting today. This is maybe the only small hope given to us. In the same way that in the United States, the same rage and chaos which gave birth to Donald Trump also gave birth to Sanders. Let's hope that the present confusion will also open up the space for European Bernie Sanders. So, uh, was this deadlock, the deadlock in which we are today after Brexit, where we see clear that both choices are worse? Just changing nothing, persisting in the Europe we have, or the nationalist way out? Uh, was it not already staged, now I return to Wagner, in the very last scene of Wagner's ring? What remains after the twilight of gods is the human crowd silently observing the cataclysmic event, a crowd which, in Patrice Cherot and Boulez, Pierre Boulez, path-breaking staging, is left staring into the spectators when the music ends. Here is Cherot's own description. Quote, the redemption motive is a message delivered to the entire world. But like all Pythonesses, the orchestra is unclear and there are several ways of interpreting its message. Doesn't one hear it? Shouldn't one hear it with mistrust and anxiety? A mistrust which would match the boundless hope which this humanity nurses and which has always been at stake, silently and invisibly in the atrocious battles which have torn human beings apart throughout the ring. The gods have lived, the values of their world must be reconstructed and reinvented. Men are there as if on the edge of a cliff, they listen tensely to the oracle which rumbles from the depth of the earth, end of quote. We can imagine this nameless crowd as a figure of today's proletariat, 
a crowd of refugees, survivors of an ideological catastrophe or a civil war. Everything now rests on them without any guarantee in God or any other figure of the big other. This predicament, the ending of Wagner's Twilight of Gods, again, when humanity, but totally disoriented humanity, survive just staring into empty space, this devastating vision, this is our situation today, and maybe, just maybe, also our hope. Thank you very much.